0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bigger Pockets Network, and happy new year. If you're anything like me, you're entering 2024 excited about the housing market and real estate investing, but you probably also have a lot of questions. The last year, both in terms of macroeconomics and in terms of the housing market's performance have been a little bit up and down. It's been a little bit confusing. And so even though there's a lot of opportunity in 2024, there are also a lot of questions that remain unanswered. So today we have a very special episode to help answer some of those questions. I am bringing in two renowned senior economists to discuss the state of the economy and the housing market. We're going to make predictions about 2024. We're going to talk, provide all the stats and all the context you need to be feel confident in building your portfolio. And that's true whether you're trying to buy your first property in 2024 or you're trying to scale up an already existing portfolio. So today, our two guests are Chen Zhao, who's a senior economist at Redfin, and Orfei Duvangai, who's the senior economist at Zillow. And we're gonna get into all of the topics that are probably on your mind. We're going to talk about things like inflation, housing prices, and of course, we will be talking about mortgage rates. Everyone always wants to talk about those. So by the end of this episode, you're going to have a very good understanding of where we stand with the economy and the housing market today and where it is likely to be going over the course of the next year. So with no further ado, let's bring on Chen Zhao from Redfin and Orfe Devangai from Zillow. Chen Zhao and Orfe Devungai, welcome to our first ever economics roundtable on the Bigger Pockets podcast. We're so excited to have both of you and your extensive industry expertise with us here today because there are a lot of questions that I have, and I assume that our audience have as well about the 2024 macroeconomic climate as well as the housing market. Today in the show, we're going to start with the macroeconomic, and then we'll get a little bit more specific down into the housing market, uh, things that everyone who listens to the show is probably interested in. But let's just start with the economy in the broadest sense. So Chen, tell me, what do you think is going to be happening with GDP in the coming year?
1: All signs point to a slightly slower um, economic growth in rounding out q4 and into 2024 so you know gdp now has q4 running about 1.2 percent you know the fed is projecting that 2024 we're going to see gdp growth about 1.4 percent this is all like kind of solid economic growth but definitely slower than what we've seen which was kind of the goal right what the fed was trying to achieve um that being said um, there's I think still a good amount of uncertainty <laughs> heading into twenty twenty four, right? The Fed is, you know, pivoting right now. Um so especially after that December meeting, we really saw a Fed that was, you know, saying we're we probably, you know, peaked and now we're trying like, you know, looking the other uh, looking to see what the path down looks like. Um, and the Fed, you know, you should always remember, is kind of like driving this car, but doesn't have like total control of it. It's kind of like when you play a video game, you're like, is this steering wheel really working? I'm not really sure, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, the Fed um, controls short-term rates really well. But the Fed has a lot less control over long-term rates. And that's especially important if you're thinking about housing, like, um, you know, those of us here <laughs> do. Um, and we saw that this um, past uh, fall when, you know, long-term rates, you know, 10-year was up to 5%. More. rates shot up to 8%. The Fed didn't do anything different. Powell never came out and said anything. That just sort of happened. And that surprised the Fed, right? And I think Probably I would guess similarly that after the the December Fed meeting, when Powell came out and gave a pretty dovish um, press conference, that he probably was always also a little bit surprised at the extent of the market reaction. Um, I'm not in Powell's head, but that's what I would um, guess, right? So all of this just to say that the Fed is still like, you know, the only game in town, but the Fed does not have perfect control over what is happening. And that makes it really hard to think about um, 2024. even though we think that we're probably going to have fairly solid economic growth, we should be aware that there's a lot of risk.
2: Chen, I totally agree. I mean, it, the, the way I like to think of this is I, I like to think of headwinds versus tailwinds, right? And so sitting down, when you think about your 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 own forecast, sitting down and, and kind of highlighting what the headwinds are and what the tailwinds are uh, and and trying to estimate, come up with, you know, which ones will dominate the other uh you know is how i kind of think about uh about what's going on so we know for example that we have an election year coming up we know that uh most election years especially when an election is uh, uh very contested right uh and the country is somewhat polarized right congress is polarized uh then you have a ton more uh policy uncertainty and I always say, you know, when people are uncertain about the future, they sit on their wallets, right? They sit back, they wait, they pause, they don't go out and buy a new car, right? And so usually that's disinflationary. Uh that could cause economic activity to to, to slow. Uh and so that's going to be a headwind uh for the US economy uh going into 2024.
1: Yeah, even taking that one step further, Orf, I think your framework is perfect. Um, you know, when there's so much uncertainty, like it's hard for consumers to plan what they're going to do. It's really hard for businesses to plan what they're going to do That's right. because um, they don't know um, when you're heading into that election year, you know, what are pol- who's going to win? You know, who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be making the rules? What are the, like the policies and regulations I'm going to be facing a year, two years, three years from now? And that makes it really hard for businesses to say like, well, now I'm now going to invest in X, Y or Z. Um, and that does tend to be a little bit of a drag on the
2: economy. We could add to this, right? Being a little bit more specific, Specific, we got the uh, Trump tax cuts uh, set to expire, right? Uh, you know, you, you probably not going to be a shift in terms of government spending uh, into the next year, but potentially, you know, more revenue coming from the tax cuts expiring, right? And so uh, maybe less borrowing, right? And that, of course, has an impact on yields uh, and mortgage rates, right?
0: We're going to get the details of what Chen and Orfe see in their forecast for the housing market a little later on, and we're going to get their pulse on the average U.S. consumer right after the break. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. slash pockets carefully consider the investment objectives risks charges and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing this and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrisecom flagship this is a paid advertisement
3: you're trying to close on your next rental so why is your insurance company dragging its feet with long lead times and never-ending paper forms it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy So whether you've got a single family, short term or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment free quote tailored to your needs today. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets.
0: Welcome back, everyone. We are here with senior economists from Redfin and Zillow, Chen Zhao and Orfe Devungai talking about their predictions for 2024. You've talked about a little bit about headwinds, sort of the macroeconomic client the Fed. I'm curious your opinion on the state of sort of the average American, average American household or consumer, because you do look at this broad macro data and you see GDP is fairly strong. You see a lot of positive indicators, but on a lot of sort of more micro levels and personal finance levels, and anecdotally, too, you hear people are struggling. We've seen student loan repayments start. Chen, how would you describe the state of the average American consumer right now?
1: I think that what we saw was that coming out of the pandemic, the government just, you know, funneled so much money into the economy, the consumer was doing really well. Um, and kind of in, a, in an unprecedented way. Um, and what we've seen, and the, the starkest, um, you know, uh, data that we had on that was just how much excess savings people had in their bank accounts coming out of the pandemic, right? Um, like, just like actual cash that, that they had to spend. Um, and, you know, what we've seen now is that, well, that excess cash is mostly gone at this point, right? So we see data from JP Morgan from May of America, who can look at people's bank accounts. And we can see that's pretty much like at this point gone. Um, and then we're also seeing, like you said, um, more credit card delinquencies. Um, so that's um, a piece of data that's coming out of the New York Fed's Household Debt and Credit Report, where we're showing that the transition into 90 day delinquency is now at like I think something like nine and a half percent or something like that. And that's, you know, elevated uh, relative to historical levels. So that might be something to be concerned about as well. And then also student loan repayment. Right. So student loan repay, uh, student loan payments were put on hold during the pandemic. They resumed in October. Um, the total amount of payments that um, would need to be um, be you know paid by consumers is estimated to be about 70 billion dollars so we think that's about 0.3 percent of disposable personal income so that's like you know not a huge amount but enough to make a debt right in people's like spending habits so there are um reasons I think these are all reasons you 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 know you might be thinking well consumers are probably a weaker than where they were. But like so many things, so many different economic metrics and statistics that we've um, been watching since the pandemic, a lot of it, I think, is about, well, what is the change versus the level? So it's like the consumer is weakening, but the consumer is also just fine. So because we were coming from such a strong Um, standing that even if you, you know, um, are weakening a little bit, you're still actually probably just fine. And we see this in like many um, other metrics. For example, we know that um, consumers are experiencing real income growth um, right now. Wages have been increasing a lot. So that is important. We also know that there's a really strong labor market that is a huge tailwind for consumers. Right. So right now we think, you know, there's probably like two to three million more open jobs and there are unemployed workers. So this is a very, very strong um, labor market. Um, and finally, you know, you can look at, you know, we know that credit card delinquencies are probably a little bit high. That's mostly focused um, in certain uh, types of consumers, um, those with worse credit, younger consumers. But then you also look at, on the other hand, like um, mortgage delinquencies, for example. Mortgage delinquencies are so, so low right now. So, like, there's a lot of data that also just shows that the consumers, you know, Pretty good right now, so I would say I'm not terribly worried about the U.S. consumer, and I think this is all like kind of very consistent with like the broader economic message, which is that we're kind of cooling, but we're you know not in a um, area where we should be worried
2: right now. I, I totally agree. We're we're cooling, but we're we're probably better off than we were uh, before the pandemic. You know, if you look at debt servicing as a share of uh, personal income uh still very low, you know, roughly around where it was in 2019, right? Uh before the pandemic. So uh you know, you look on the surface, we're doing well. Are we cooling? Yes. Are we feeling the pinch? Yes. Uh but we're we're still, you know, we're doing much better than we were uh probably uh just you know three, four years ago, right? So so now I to- I totally agree. I think that's uh the consumer is in pretty good shape still. Of course there's a distribution, right? So you're gonna have you know people at the bottom they're going to feel feel a little bit of pain still uh but uh but you look at you know you look at the labor market and i think as long as people have jobs uh the us economy is going to be okay you know all
0: right so i think the theme that we're hearing here for everyone listening to this Is that the US economy is doing pretty well by most macroeconomic measurements right now? But Chen and Orfe seem to agree that we're slowing down. And so we might still continue growing. It sounds like both of you think that we'll still remain positive in terms of GDP growth next year, and even though consumers might be in a worse position than they were in this year or the previous year, that things are still decent in a historical context, both in terms of macroeconomic indicators and the the, the situation of, for
2: for consumers. So Dave, you know, it, it's, it's even it's hard to, to really say, right, if we're worse off than we were, right? Because if you think about, you know, Chen alluded to this, right? Wages adjusted for inflation have actually increased. Mm-hmm. They had been decreased. They decreased in 21 and decreased in 22 as inflation uh, rose to ni- roughly 9% uh, mid- midway through last year. Uh, financial wealth, you look at the Fed report, financial wealth has actually increased, Uh, You know, at the end of 2022, if you told me the stock market would have done what it did in 2023, I would have thought you were absolutely crazy, right? The stock market went on a tear in 2023, surprised everyone, right? And we're finishing the year so strong. And so financial financial wealth also increased. Uh, Housing wealth, right? We had this big dip uh, where we thought, oh, my goodness, house prices are coming down. And all of a sudden, house prices rebounded. Home equity right, is still near an all-time high. Yeah, prices have fallen in, in, in a lot of metros. Home equity is still near an all-time high for a lot of homeowners. These homeowners bought, uh, a, a lot of these homeowners who bought before the pandemic were able to refinance at very low rates. So they have very low monthly mortgage payments. And so, it, and so, you know, I, I look at this and I say, hey, this consumer, this average consumer, the middle class, might actually be doing really well right now.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that, Orfe, because, um, like, I totally agree with all these statistics you're saying. You know, like all the metrics are great, and then it's like we have this problem where everyone seems to have bad vibes about the economy. Yes, <laughs> right, and everyone is super negative. Totally, that's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs>
0: that's so interesting. But, so, what what is that, Chen? What do you what do you attribute that to? Like, it, and the macro data, classical measurements show that things are doing well, but it doesn't seem that people feel the economy is doing well. So, where's the disconnect?
1: Yeah, you know, it's yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It does feel like there is a disconnect, right? Because just like or said it's like wow your income is growing you have so much housing wealth you have like whatever your portfolio is it's doing fantastic you know yada 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 and at the same time the fed is like you know taming inflation so we don't really need to maybe we don't need to worry about that anymore so why are you worried right i think that um a lot of it, I think mean, there's like two things I would say. One is that, you know, as economists, we always look at the median or the average. That's the most accessible thing to look at, right? And the distribution is just really wide. You are gonna have pockets of people who just have a very different experience than the median or the average person, right? Um, and those people are real people, right? They're real voters and they're real people with real feelings. So that's, I think, a lot of it. Um, and then the second thing Um, I would say it's just that even though, you know, the Fed has, you know, seems like the Fed has gotten inflation tamed, you know, um, and inflation is now going to be much closer to two to three percent um we have experienced a big price level jump yes. and it takes a long time for people to psychologically like acclimate to that like i was trying to uh, not to call out the rock cats or anything but looks like, i think it's a fantastic show but like i was looking at tickets for the rock cats and i was like holy cow that is really high and i was like wow i guess if it's like you know this percent this percent then it's like it does make sense that this like what is what the price level is even if there's not going to be further inflation in the future but um for people, I think even though like maybe they've seen their, you know, paychecks increase, they're still experiencing that sticker shock when they're seeing the prices. And that's like a negative um, kind of, you know, sentiment sort of thing. So those are the two things that I would point to. And then on the kind of like pockets of people who, you know, are not experiencing what the average or the median person is experiencing. Importantly for the housing market, I think we should think about like people who don't yet own a home, right? So, you know, we're talking about housing wealth, all the people who refinance, you have a 2% mortgage rate, have so much home equity, but what if I never bought a home to begin with, mm-hmm. right? Or like a lot of Americans don't own any stocks, so I don't care if the S and P five hundred is doing great.
2: That's right. That's
1: not benefiting me at all. So I think that's where a lot of these kind of like bad vibes are coming
2: from. I absolutely agree with Chen. I think this is uh, this is probably the price. You know, I get this all the time. and I'm very active on social media, and where you know you report on inflation coming down, and people are like, "No, this is not true," right? Because the you know prices are higher. Uh, than they were uh, just a year ago.
0: Yeah. Well, if, if my parents are any indication of, of your ideas here, you're absolutely right. I can't have a single conversation with either of them where they don't tell me the new price of every single thing that they've bought over the last couple of weeks. It's <laughs> just like, can't fathom it. And I do think people also get confused between the idea of disinflation and deflation Right. that disinflation is the slowing down of price of price gains, but there's not going to be, there's very unlikely going to be deflation where price Prices actually get lower. So those two things are are different concepts. But I think you're totally right, Chen, that it takes a really long time for people to really get used to it. It's I feel I look at all the data and I still look at and get sticker shock at a lot of the things I buy.
1: Yeah. And not only do you like, are we not going to get deflation, you do not want deflation. Exactly. If you get deflation, like that means we are in really serious trouble because, like, it almost seems counterintuitive. People are like, well, don't I want prices to like de- decline so I have like, you know, increased real purchasing power? But you don't because in an economy like that, no one would ever buy anything. Like if you could like buy eggs like cheaper tomorrow, why would you buy eggs today? And that is a really like dangerous economic cycle to get into. So that's why we aim for that nice 2% (laughs) inflation.
2: And it also means the unemployment rate could soar, right? If you're not buying anything, right? Uh, Businesses have no reasons to hire anyone, right? They might even lay off a lot of people. And so, you know, you you end up losing your job.
0: So we've talked about the broad macroeconomic economy and what's going on and what you both think is likely to happen in the next year. But I'd like to shift the conversation more to the housing market because our audience here, most of them are active or aspiring real estate investors. And the million dollar question for a lot of people is, is it a good time to buy real estate? And I know there's a lot of factors that go into that, but Chen, I'm just curious, can you? give us at the highest level your outlook for the housing market next year?
1: So I think um, I would say our top line is that the housing market in 2024, we see an improved picture for buyers, better circumstances for buyers. Most important reason for that is because we see affordability. Improving a little bit next year, so we do think that rates will be coming down. You know, we're seeing um, after the the December Fed meeting already that the Fed is pivoting. You know, we're talking about rate cuts in 2024. There's obviously an open question of how many, when are they going to come. But it really seems like rates are going to be on a downward path. Like it's uh, we're not headed to like the three percent you know pandemic era rates, but we're heading to like kind of lower territory. So that's going to be fairly significant for buyers and for sellers as well. Um, And then the second thing is we do see prices softening um, in 2024. So, um, you know, prices softening is kind of like can be a little bit of a nuanced topic because, you know, so generally we're talking about nominal prices, right? So that means like not taking into account inflation. So like 0% price growth is, um, you know, for example, actually prices, the Uh, declining in a real sense, because inflation is higher than 0%. Um, So we really see prices kind of like either being like kind of flat in the 0% or falling maybe 1% um, range. So that is um, improved affordability for buyers compared to what they're seeing in terms of increases in their paychecks um, for for both rates and prices. Um, And then in addition to that, we see a more inventory coming online. And that's, you know, part of the reason why we see prices softening is because I think, you know, in our Redfin data, we're seeing that um, customers who are contacting Redfin to have consults about listing their home we're seeing double digit growth year over year oh, wow. in that um, in the latest weeks um, and that's you know hasn't turned into like you know actual listings just yet but you know even in the actual like new listings data we're starting to see like those ticks up in the last few weeks. So um, we think there's more coming down the pipeline. Um, and the reason for all of this is I think people are getting tired of waiting, you know. Um, our agents are telling us that, you know, that customer, that customers that they're talking to are like, they have been waiting for something to happen in the housing market because they want to divorce their husband or they need to move (laughs) for some other reason to like, you know, um, because they want to be closer to their grandkids or something like that. Something more positive than divorcing your husband. But, um, Okay. You
0: hear it here first, Jen, are you saying the divorce rates are going to go up? Interest rates go down, divorce rates go
2: up.
1: I would rather make a call on interest rates rather than divorce rates. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
2: We I think the point is, life happens, right? And, uh, you know, life events uh, are one of the major reasons people move in the first place, right?
1: Yep, that's right. Yeah. So I think people who are sellers are getting tired of waiting and they're realizing that rates are never going back to 3%. And they're just like, so they're saying, you know what, I'm going, I'm selling, I'm doing the thing I need to do um, at this point. So that's a much better picture for buyers and means better affordability. Plus, you have more homes to choose from. So we do see the um, a more optimistic picture for 2024 than 2023.
0: That's really interesting because you see, you know, as you said, the most recent Fed meeting, which was in December, we saw this announcement that pushed down bond yields, mortgage rates started to fall a little bit. And I think the most immediate reaction from most real estate investors was, wow, this is going to kick off a big, another round of appreciation of home price growth because it's going to increase demand. But I just want to make sure everyone here understands what Chen is saying is that Demand may go up, but if supply also goes up at the same time, prices could stay relatively flat and perhaps we could see softening prices, but we might also see an increase in total transaction volume, which would probably be very welcome news to any agents or mortgage uh, lenders here who are listening to this. Um, And That has sort of been my question about 2024 is like rates may come down, demand's going to come up, but I've just been curious about where supply is going to come from. We'll hear from Orfe on supply and demand, plus more discussion on affordability, the mortgage rate predictions everyone wants to hear, and which markets to watch in 2024, all coming up after the break.
3: This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we hosted on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it.
4: Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure.
0: We're back with Orfe Devungai and Chen Zhao. Chen just shared a possible scenario where we could see more supply and more demand in 2024. Orfe, do you see the same sort of situation where both demand and supply could increase a bit next year?
2: Totally, totally. And by the way, I'm the most optimistic member of the Zillow economic research team. And sometimes they <laughs> laugh at me a little bit because you know, I always see I always see everything in a positive light. So uh new listings going up. Up 3.1% year over year, according to our data. Uh, and, you know, they were down a lot, right? Uh, especially in the spring when we you, you were hopeful that existing homeowners would be putting their homes on the market, uh, for, on the for sale market. They just didn't show up. Uh, and now we're starting to see, right? If you look at uh, the, the, since about July of this year, new listings, the flow of homes coming on the market was pretty much flat, right? And it's, you know, and then, and it's now catching up. Uh So I'm very optimistic. And like Chen mentioned, I think life events, but also preferences haven't changed. You know, it, it, that old house, you know, that you don't want to live in anymore. You know, you were sitting around kind of just because a little bit of uncertainty, right? Fluctual, a ton of uh, mortgage rate volatility. You, you don't know what's happening with the economy. Uh And so you pause, you sit on your wallet, you wait, you don't do anything. But now you know, you, you start to see things kind of normalize and, and now you can adjust your budget. You can look at things and, and, and make sense of, Oh, okay. Well, you know, now I know where I'm headed. I still have my job. Uh, things are looking pretty good. Uh, I know mortgage rates are not going to fall off a cliff anymore. You know, I think a lot of people are like sitting there thinking, Hey, maybe mortgages are going to come down. And we know mortgages are easing, but they're not going to fall off a cliff. And, you know, I tell everybody the only times we've seen mortgages fall off a cliff was the bursting of the dot-com bubble, the uh, middle of the global financial crisis, and the start of a global pandemic, right? And so I, we know mortgages are not going to fall off a cliff. They're going to ease a little bit. We may even see a little bit less rate volatility, especially if inflation continues to move towards the Fed's target. Uh, the market will become less responsive to all the, the economic news, you know, uh, like it has been in the past year. So all of that is going to be conducive to getting people out there again. Our data, Zillow data also shows that 70 percent of sellers end up buying again, right? Not 100 percent, 70 percent. So you're going to have more supply from those guys than demand uh, going, you know, if you if you continue to see new listings come up. Uh, into 2024. and so uh, all of that together tells me just like Chen mentioned that you're going to probably see prices soften a little bit uh, new listings are no longer no longer going to be a big drag on housing inventory and of course, uh, I think I'm optimistic. I think that might mean more transactions uh, going forward.
0: I, I appreciate that explanation. Orfe, you say you're an optimist. So I just want to play devil's advocate here for just a second and just get your opinion. Because I think there is a narrative or common you know, line of thinking that I hear that affordability is just so low right now that even if rates come down a little bit, prices are just too high and it's somewhat... People feel, I think, inevitable that prices have to come down because they're just so much higher than they used to be. So, and you couple that with some of the things you said about perhaps a slowing economy. Um, Do you think, what do you say to that, I guess?
2: I think builders probably worry about that a little bit too, right? So they, they have a ton of homes under construction. Still, those homes are coming on the market. Housings, and of course, because there's so many homes uh, that are uh, coming on the market on the new construction side, you're starting to see builder sentiment decline a little bit, and you start to see starts. Why would I start a new project if I have a ton of units that are coming that I ha- I need to sell? And so, uh, and so all of that, I think you know we're going to see. But if you just to give an idea, yes, affordability is still a problem, but if you think about the fact that mortgage rates were lower than they are today, last year than they are today, right? And yet. Uh, the average price cut for new construction hasn't changed, still about 6%. Uh, the share of listings of a price cut relative to last year is actually lower, right? Uh, so if they, if you didn't have, if, if people just couldn't afford a home, and by the way, you know, I have to say it, it, the housing market is local, right? So I'm talking kind of on average, the US level. Uh, there are places that are absolutely unaffordable, we, you know, that you just absolutely can't even, People can't qualify. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of the L.A. area, Riverside, California. I mean, you know, there are places that are just out of reach for a lot of people. Uh, but just on average, uh, you know, you still have you still have some demand out there. Demand has slowed, but there's 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 demand still exceeds supply, and uh, and so that's why I'm still very optimistic going forward. And I'm not the only one, right? We we hear about Warren Buffett. And new construction and the love for new construction going forward. So, so you know, I'm very fairly optimistic uh, that 2024 could be a better year uh, because uh, new listings have already bottomed in 2023.
1: Yeah, I think the affordability question is a really good one. Um, and it's also it's one of the reasons why, you know, Dave, you were saying, well, if rates are dropping, like, why won't prices just like, you know, go up more? It's like Well, actually, because I think affordability puts a cap on that, because I think at some point people just can't afford to buy more. Um, but I think the affordability correction um, doesn't have to come in the form of this big drop in prices, right? Like the 20 the 2008 style price drop, that only happened once. <laughs> and there's a reason it only happened once in a very unique under very unique circumstances, right? So I think if um, you can also see affordability improve in the form of like a multi-year span of time where you see prices only like are being like flat or up 1% or down 1% or something like that, where prices are just increasing less than inflation, but just a little bit less than inflation. And that is um, um, in improvement and affordability, right? Um, and also, we do expect rates to come down as well. So like a lot of the affordability issue um, in the last year has been a rates issue and not necessarily a price um, issue.
0: I want to make sure everyone understands what affordability means in terms of the housing market. It's basically how easily the averaged American can afford the average price home, or as orfe accurately pointed out, this is also local. how, how, easily someone in a particular market can afford that uh, particular uh, a home in that market. And there are generally three sort of uh, legs to this affordability stool. There's mortgage rates, as Chen just alluded to. There's home prices and there's also wages. So there are different ways that more affordability can go up or down. It's not just home prices.
1: That's the perfect explanation for it. Um, and yeah, so the other thing that I would say that wouldn't... Um, you know, I would say point to not seeing a big price decline is just like the tailwind, the demographic tailwinds, um, for home prices and for demand. Um, you know, we still, we know that, you know, millennials are still in this like age where we need to buy homes, right? People are, um, having kids. They just like, they need to buy homes. So there's a lot of demand out there. And then we have Gen Z coming up, right? So like a lot of demographic analysis really is showing this, you know, very, we're entering into these years of very strong home buyer demand. So even though, you know, prices are high, rates are still high um, right now, you know, there's just a lot of need out there.
2: And Chen, you're absolutely spot on. And, and, And you can add to that list population from abroad. You got a lot of new families coming from abroad, right? We finally reopened kind of after COVID where you had immigration the last even a few years before COVID, you know, immigration levels into the country had kind of slowed. Uh, All of a sudden, we have more more people coming into the country, and that actually turns into more families in addition, right, Net, net new families, and that pushes the men higher.
0: Well, thank you. That's a very, very useful explanation. Since we're talking about affordability, I'm sorry to do this to you both, but I have to try and get a prediction from each of you on, on mortgage rates. I'll let you, you can have a range, but Orfe, what do you think? Do you think, where do you think mortgage rates will be a year from now in December of 2024,
2: if you had to guess? Very, very difficult to, to, to predict. Uh, and you can see it. I mean, in the market reaction that we got, the, 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 the market was pricing in four rate cuts. Uh, the Fed hinted at three. And yet, yields continue to fall, right? Um, so, you know, I'm not Dave. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to give you a number, uh, but I'm going to tell you that the way I think about it again is is headwinds versus tailwinds, right? And uh, the market's very unpredictable. But we know going into next year, we have, you know, all of these uh, disinflation that's going to, that's going to to help bring yields down. Uh, th- then you have the mortgage rate spread. Right. Which, you know, is kind of depends on uncertainty. Right. And that's likely if we're if we see less volatility going forward, that's probably going to in the markets, that's probably going to shrink as well. Uh, At the same time, I mentioned earlier that we're going to have a lot of policy uncertainty ahead of the election. Right. In the summer of next in the summer of 24, uh, in the few months before election and the election. That's going to be a drag on economic activity as well, uh, and that's going to be disinflationary. And so, uh, so again, I, I expect yields to continue to ease, to continue to move lower. Uh, I don't expect them to fall off a cliff, especially if, we can, uh, if the Fed can stick the lending, uh, essentially, and we can avoid uh, a, a recession uh, in 2024. All
0: right, Chen, can I get a number out of you?
1: (laughs) I understand the hesitation to give a number, right? It's hard. Um, There's so much uncertainty these days. I would guess that the number starts with a six in December of 2024. Um, In our Redfin predictions, we um, guessed, I'd say, I think something like six and a half by the end of 2024. We published that before the December Fed meeting where Powell really started to um, show a pivot. Um, so maybe it will be a little bit lower than that. Maybe it will be in the lower sixes. Um, but, um, you know, I think Orfe gave you a really good framework for thinking about what will happen with rates. Um, you know, it depends on what the Fed funds rate does. Um, and then there's a lot of uncertainty around all of that. Um, and then, but on top of that, um, you know, you had mortgage rate spreads, um, obviously, um, and that might, you know, collapse a little bit. But um, critically, there's what happens with the Fed funds rate, and what the Fed is going to do. But then there's what happens with long term rates, like with the 10 year treasury. Is going to do. And the Fed just has very little control over that. Um, so that can go, that could stay the same, go up or go down as the Fed is cutting. Um, it's a little bit uncertain depending on what else the Fed is saying and what other economic circumstances there are. And, you know, what else investors are worried about. So in this, this past summer, investors became very worried about, um, you know, government debt levels, like tax revenues, you know, kind of the long term sustainability of our spending and how much treasury supply there was. And so yields really shot up and rates really shot up. And that really had nothing to do, like a very little to do with inflation, right? Um, so that's what makes it really hard to guess. But I think if I were kind of, you know, someone who was looking to buy um, a home in the near future, I would guess that in 2024, you're going to round out the year with numbers that, you know, around like a number that starts with a six, probably maybe in the low sixes.
2: And then also, Chen, you, you, you alluded to all these factors. And then there's also that that that, uh, the, the global economy, right? Uh, the, from abroad, investors abroad are looking to, are looking to U.S. assets. Uh, you know, when, when you have conflict abroad, you have geopolitical tensions, you know, that could, uh, you know, mean more investors, uh, come in to absorb all, all of that treasury supply, right? And so, and so those are all factors to keep track of, uh, which is why, it, you know, the, the job of forecasting yields. Um, is very, very difficult.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I want to just sort of reiterate and make sure everyone listening understands this. The Fed does not control mortgage rates. They control the federal funds rate, which, of course, has an impact on, on bond yields and on on businesses and all these other different complicated things that impact mortgage rates. But just because the Fed says that they might cut rates three times next year, I don't think we should all be taking a victory lap. I think it's encouraging. um, But, you know, there's still likely to be some volatility in rates, at least in the short term, while we see where bond yields start to head. And again, we've seen the Fed indicate things that they wound up not doing. So we also there's just no guarantee that they're going to stick to the plan or the indication that they've given. In us, as of December of 2024. But that said, I think you know things are looking encouraging. I want to turn to risk because you know most of the people who listen to this podcast are investing. They're not you know buying a home to to live in for five to ten years. And so I'm curious. Although you've shared some of your feelings about the housing market and where it might be going, I'm curious, Chen. Do you have any? thoughts on what risks might exist for real estate investors heading into the next year?
1: I think the risks are going to be regional. Um, So I think that overall, as we have been discussing, um, it's If you're a real estate investor, I really don't see, you know, prices coming down a ton. However, I do think there could be certain markets where you do see some significant price declines. We're already seeing some pretty significant price declines in places in Texas, for example. So I think Austin in our data is down close to like double digits year over year on median sale price. Um, So a lot of these places that actually where it was a lot easier to build, Um, additional supply, um, which was great in the pandemic, when people were really trying to move there. It was easier to build that supply to meet the demand, and prices were going up a lot. we're now probably seeing that they're, um, you know, that the opposite where there's, you know, less demand. So like, there's more risk for prices coming down in some of those markets. So there's um, a lot of these might be Sunbelt areas, um, like Austin, for example. So that's where um, I would probably be a little bit more cautious. And but I would feel a little bit safer in the more affordable places, places where prices are lower. So we see that, Um, You know, in upstate New York or in the Midwest where um, prices are below the national median, those places are some of the tightest markets that we're we're seeing, where um, homes are going the fastest. I think in Rochester, we were seeing the homes were going off the market in eight days, you know, on average. And that's because these places are just very affordable. And in a time where affordability is really strained, they're very attractive.
0: Makes sense. I love the Rochester shout out. I went to college there. Orfe, what about you? Do you see any other risks in the market?
2: If you look at the latest American Community Survey data uh, for 2022, uh, Austin, Texas was the fastest metro uh, out of the top 50 metros, at least, fastest growing by population. Uh, and he, and the housing stock there just exploded at the same time. And the, the housing stock grew faster than even the fastest population growth. and so now you end up in a situation where you have uh, all these homes, uh, and so of course prices uh, it's it sent prices falling, right? Uh, and so you know I think Chen alluded to this we're we're seeing the same thing in our data. Uh, whether or not uh, you know whether or not that's going to continue is another story because I think that you know if people are going to places it might Austin may not be affordable for locals. But if people are going to Austin from California, uh, by the way, we know thirty uh, percent of Californians are moving to basically Texas, Arizona, and Florida. Uh, so if people are moving from the more expensive California metros to to Texas, uh, and then they're seeing that prices are falling so much, well, that you know that d- decline in prices might actually be a good thing going forward. Um, And then I like, uh, you know, I also like some of these markets, uh, uh, you know, uh, Charlotte, Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, you got that research triangle there. You still got a lot of people moving to the, to that area. You got the Nashville, Tennessee market, which is one of my favorites. Uh, also, uh, with still a lot of population growth. And so those are markets where I expect to see, uh, the continued population growth, right? Uh, but you also have to be careful in the sense that. You know, if you have a lot of renters that can't necessarily go out and buy a home, or you have a lot of people or, or builders expect population growth to remain robust in some of these markets, well, you're, you're probably going to see a lot of supply, right? If I anticipate, if I anticipate all these renters coming, well, you know, I'm going to, you're going to see a lot of people wanting to become landlords and, and renter and builders building a ton of supply. And so uh and so maybe you're not going to get the types of returns uh on your investment that you that you thought because everybody's kind of doing the same thing. Uh so that's kind of why uh you know I talk to agents a lot. I, I loved, you know, I I love agents, work together a lot. Uh and so I uh I, I talk to agents and agents are telling me, yeah, you know, uh it's booming here. But yeah, but builders, build, builders are also coming in big time, right? And so now you you might have to compete with, you know, so I was looking at single family townhomes and homes in, uh, in the Nashville area. And then next door, you have a multifamily unit and they're offering, they have a swimming pool, pickleball court. They're offering uh, rent concessions, right? Uh, so now if you're a landlord uh, in a townhome, right, next to a, a place like that, uh, you have to compete with, uh the concessions that uh, the other guys are offering uh, right next door and so you have that supply coming if if the if the demand was anticipated you have a ton of supply and so now you're also having to compete with uh with the other new landlords uh, new landlords in town that that's
0: a great point at orfe i i really resonate with that cuz i i still own a couple properties in denver which is definitely one of those more overbuilt Areas in terms of multifamily supply, and I wound up selling a property because you just look around you, and I, you know, it an, it's one of these old like Victorians that are cut up into four four different units. It was a nice place, but then you see these like brand new things with a gym coming on, and it's offering similar rent. And I was like, I can't compete with that. Yeah. And even if I could keep vacancies, you know, pretty minimal. Rent growth is going to be stunted in that area just because you're facing a lot of competition. And so that's something it's a really uh, important risk for people to to think about in their market. But that one, again, is is super regional, like where where multifamily supplies coming online tend to be in these sort of hotter markets. It's really less significant, I think, in some of these tertiary or, or smaller cities. Um, you just don't see it as much. Chen, are there any markets that you think are particularly interesting, either in a positive or negative way, next year?
1: Yeah, I think that um, in addition to like kind of the Sunbelt and like these like really affordable places, I think like watching you know the West Coast markets um, are going to be really interesting because those are the ones that had the big price correction um, that we saw or like late in 2022, early in 2023, and those are the kinds of places where I think people are kind of going back in and saying maybe there's a deal to be had now, Um, and they're also um the places where you know we're seeing some of these um you know trends around return to office that are changing now right so i think um you know companies are becoming a little bit more strict with return to office there's kind of um you know you're hearing stories about boomerang migration we hear those from our agents where they're saying yeah this person they moved to boise but then they discovered that either they wanted to move to a place that had a lot more jobs in boise or they just discovered that the boise lifestyle really wasn't for them (laughs) it turns out (laughs) you know that maybe they actually want to be closer to like a san francisco or seattle or something like that and maybe similarly you see something like that um with you know like a miami to like new york kind of thing so i think keeping an eye on those places like the san francisco's the seattle's the you know new york's and the dc's where people like were leaving those places and seeing what's going to happen in 2024 would be really interesting
0: great well thank you both so much this has been a fascinating conversation I got to tell you guys, I, I thought having someone from Redfin, Zillow, two heavyweights in the industry, we're going to have like this big clash, but you guys agreed on a lot of stuff. So uh, hopefully that helps in our, our audience and feel confident about what's going on uh, next year that we have a couple of uh, economists agreeing with each other, which is not always the case um, when you bring two, two, two different economists together. But thank you both so much. It's really appreciated. Orfe, if people want to learn more about your research and the work that you're te- does. Where should they do that?
2: Yeah, zillow.com forward slash research. And uh, if you want to look me up on social media, I'm on LinkedIn, you can just type in my name and you'll will it be very easy to find me.
0: All right, thank you. What about you, Chen?
1: Yeah, we're similarly at redfin.com slash news. Um, You can also follow Redfin on social media, on Instagram uh, or Twitter, or formerly known as Twitter, I guess, (laughs) these days, Um, or, you know, other social media platforms.
0: Well, thanks again to both of you. We hope to have you back on the show again soon.
1: All right, thanks so much for having us.
0: Thanks for having us. On the Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. The show is produced by Kalen Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content, and we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all.